talk a little bit about Hagar today. But before we begin, I want you to join me in prayer. God, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of each of our hearts be pleasing to you, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. Have you ever been to the edge of a cliff or a mountain? Raise your hand if so. Okay. Oh, look at color risk takers. Great. Not like a baby hill, like a big, scary, yeah, y'all are not, y'all knew exactly what I was asking. Okay, I want us all, even if you have not been on a scary, tall mountain before, I want you all to imagine yourself at the edge of a cliff, so close to the edge that the little rocks are falling off into the abyss. Imagine your heart racing as you realize how far away you are from soft, safe, solid ground. The wind is blowing around you, you're exhausted from the hike, and your adrenaline is racing as you peek over the edge. When we are at life's cliffs, it can be overwhelming and still exciting. Edges are tricky places full of fear and last-ditch efforts. I was recently reading a blog post by Diana Butler Bass. She is a Christian theologian and author, and she was talking about how so many of us are on edge these days. Not necessarily a typical edge like we imagine. Instead, it's like we are balancing between safety and disaster, sometimes multiple times a day. Tensions are high. When I read her describe the edges that are surrounding all of us at People, she listed things like a pandemic, duh. She also listed all the tension around vaccines, the recent climate report, a regime change in Afghanistan, the earthquake in Haiti. And as I read this exhaustive list, I felt seen. I felt justified in my feelings of overwhelmness that I often feel. Then you throw in social media and the many ways that we have an instantaneous connection to one another, for better or worse. And it's all a lot, friends. We are truly living our lives on the edge, teetering back and forth between safety and risk, between fear and relief. Edges can be scary places. I am not a risk taker. I like safety. I like knowing what's coming. This probably doesn't surprise you if you've ever heard me preach. When I go on roller coasters, I am the person that is pulling the restraint tighter and tighter till I can get that last final click. Does anyone feel me? And then it's so tight it hurts, but I feel a little safer just knowing it's that close to me and I can't squeeze out. But even as I push down that restraint, I'm still making that decision to ride the roller coaster. I'm not bailing, I'm staying around, I'm just doing everything I can to be safe. When we are on edge, when we are faced with decisions, 
we have to make a decision. We can't just stand there at the edge forever. Something has to give. The blog post I mentioned in Diana Butler Bass's post introduced me to this idea, this theory in psychology about how to think of edges. I want to read to you this quote. She writes, there's something called edge theory in psychology. That's the drive towards survival in life-threatening situations. If one doesn't surrender to fear at the edge or the temptation to toss others from the mountain, people at edges learn to cooperate in creative ways to solve problems. Edge theory in environmental science has long noted that edges are places of great biodiversity. Zones of ecological encounter are often stronger with more resilient and sustainable ecologies than more isolated natural habitats. We are often pushed to our edges, to the uncomfortable, to the messy, to the overwhelming. And when we are pushed there, it's up for us to decide how to act and where to go next. Do we cooperate in creative ways? Do we give in to fear? Do we toss others from the mountain? This morning, we continue our sermon series called It's Complicated. Our series is all about the mother and father of faith, Abraham and Sarah, and their complicated story. Today, we also talk about Hagar. We have spent two weeks focusing on the promise God gave to Abraham and Sarah to have as many descendants as stars in the sky. Today, another spoiler alert, we see the fruition of this promise and the complications that arise once this promise is fulfilled. We're going to split all of our readings up today because there's a lot of it, but we need to read it all. It's the Bible. Let's start with Genesis chapter 21. We're going to begin with verses 1 through 7. Hear these words from the author of Genesis. The Lord was attentive to Sarah just as he had said, and the Lord carried out just what he'd promised her. She became pregnant and gave birth to a son for Abraham when he was old, at the very time God had told him. Abraham named his son, the one Sarah bore him, Isaac. Abraham circumcised his son Isaac when he was just eight days old, just as God had commanded. Abraham was 100 years old when his son Isaac was born. Kids, is 100 years old? Yes, 100 is old. No offense to anyone in the room. Sarah said, God has given me laughter. Everyone who hears about it will laugh with me. She says, who could have told Abraham that Sarah would nurse sons? But now I've given birth to a son when he was old. Abraham and Sarah see the fulfillment of this promise from God. They're blessed with a child, with a son. And funny enough, they named this son Isaac. Isaac, a name that means laughter. 
laughter, just as Abraham and Sarah laughed when God told them that they would have a son together at their old age. This should be a happy story. It is such an exciting time for them and for their community. There is a descendant. At least one would think it should be a happy time. Let's keep reading. Verses 8 through 14. The boy, Isaac, grew and stopped nursing. On the day he stopped nursing, Abraham prepared a huge banquet. Sarah saw Hagar's son, Ishmael, laughing, the one Hagar the Egyptian had borne to Abraham. So Sarah said to Abraham, send this servant away with her son. This servant's son won't share the inheritance with my son, Isaac. This upset Abraham terribly because the boy was his son. God said to Abraham, don't be upset about the boy and your servant. Do everything Sarah tells you to do because your descendants will be traced through Isaac. But I will make of your servant's son a great nation too because he is also your descendant. Abraham got up early in the morning took some bread, a flask of water, and gave it to Hagar. He put the boy in her shoulder sling and sent her away. Complicated, right? Here's a quick refresher for us all. Hagar, Hagar was Sarah's servant, and when Sarah was unable to have a child of her own, Sarah gave Hagar to Abraham as a wife to bear him a son the son Ishmael, a son she imagined she could help raise, a son she imagined even if it wasn't her own, it was someone who could continue Abraham's line, a line of promised descendants, as many as stars in the sky. In these days, it was very common for men to have a lot of wives. This is where we all say, boo. Not that just because it was normal makes it a moral option, but it was really common of the time. However, we read here that once Sarah has her own child, once she has Isaac, she shuns Hagar, and she shuns Hagar's son Ishmael, the one once upon a time she thought she could have as her own. Well, actually, I guess Sarah doesn't shun them, right? She tells Abraham to shun them. And this is complicated. It's complicated because Sarah has suffered from abuse herself. She has been at the hands of the Egyptians. It's complicated because Sarah has lived with the burden and the imposed guilt that comes from being unable to bear a child for so long. It's complicated. Sarah is flawed, definitely. But Sarah is multifaceted. There are a lot of sides to her and the emotions she is experiencing. Sarah is on edge. And instead of falling over the edge herself, she pushes Hagar off, which maybe is indicative that she herself is actually falling over the edge too. 
These are two women living in a male-dominated society. They've been forced to play roles that they probably did not choose for themselves. They probably had no hand in, the, in saying what they've been dealt. Nothing about their situation is simple or easy to understand especially not for us today, as we read this story so long after when it actually occurred. And then in our reading, we continue on to hear that God actually wants to go along with Sarah's plan to shun Hagar. And as I read that, I feel sad. I feel let down. But it also reminds me that I don't pretend to know everything about God. And here is a moment, particularly in Scripture, where I have to trust in the mystery of God and the way God works in the world. Also, also, this situation isn't just complicated for Sarah and Hagar, maybe even God. It's also complicated for Abraham. Abraham he has to send his son away. Abraham is committed to following God, committed to doing everything God calls him to do. And still, this command to banish Hagar and Ishmael seems to cause Abraham pain. And that's important for us to note too. These people are on edge, all of them. And it's only going to continue. We're going to get back into our story. But before we do, I want to share with you all some background on Hagar even more. We're going to throw it back a few chapters. So we're going back in time. And Hagar has already established a relationship with God. Which you may think like, okay, whatever, no big deal. But y'all, this is a big deal. It's a big deal because Hagar is Egyptian. She has nothing to do with Abraham's faith or Abraham's God. But in chapter 16 of Genesis, just a few chapters before this, Hagar herself has an encounter with God. It's the chapter where Sarah actually gives Hagar as a wife to Abraham, and Hagar becomes pregnant. As Hagar is pregnant tensions begin to rise between Hagar and Sarah. They rise rise so much that Hagar actually runs away from Sarah. She runs through the desert, and as she runs, God stops and engages with her. God promises Hagar that her son that isn't born yet will have an inheritance, that she will be blessed with many descendants. God also calls Hagar in this earlier moment to put up with Sarah's harsh treatment of her. And it's in this interaction that something powerful happens. Throughout this story of Abraham and Sarah, They never call Hagar by her name. They refer to her as an Egyptian, as a slave, as a servant girl. But when God approaches Hagar, 
God calls her by name, Hagar. It's the only time her name is used. It's when God is in dialogue with Hagar. An Egyptian servant, someone outside of Abraham's faith, is called, is named, is claimed by God. And it doesn't stop there. In return, Hagar herself names God. She says, you are El Royai because you are the only one who's truly seen me. Kids from earlier, God is the only one who's seen Hagar and calls her special, right? God is kind to her. Of course, we know Hagar returns back to Sarah because we get the story we're reading and focusing on today. So let's continue on. Abraham has shunned Hagar and Ishmael, and we're going to pick up verse 14 through 21. Hagar left and wandered through the desert near Beersheba. Finally, the water in the flask, the flask Abraham gave her, ran out, and she puts the boy down under one of the desert shrubs. She walked away from him about as far as a bow shot and sat down, telling herself, I can't bear to see the boy die. She sat at a distance, cried out in grief, and she wept. God heard the boy's cries, and God's messenger called to Hagar from heaven and said to her, Hagar, calling her by name once again, what's wrong? Don't be afraid. God has heard the boy's cries over there. Get up, pick up the boy, and take him by the hand, because I will make of him a great nation. Then God opened her eyes, and she saw a well. She went over, filled the water flask, and gave the boy a drink. God remained with the boy. He grew up, lived in the desert, and became an expert archer. He lived in the Paran Desert, and his mother found him an Egyptian wife. This is the word of God for the people of God. Let the church say, thanks be to God. Hagar is literally at that edge we keep talking about. She believes her son is going to die out in the wilderness. And at her edge, once again, she's met by God. The God who offered her wisdom and claimed her at an earlier time in the desert, that same God appears now and offers water and a reminder of that original promise to make Ishmael into a great nation. We also catch this glimpse of how Hagar once again shatters the status quo. Verse 21 says, his mother found him an Egyptian wife. Not once in the Old Testament does a mother find a wife for her son. Even at life's edges, God shows up. Even when others have been pushed beyond the edge and negatively affected the lives of someone else, God shows up. 
I find the concept of edge theory so fascinating because it revolves around claiming stress and fear and turning it in to resilience and relief. While these edges are terrifying and threatening and not something to be taken lightly, they can also be spaces full of spontaneity and newness. If only we can come to terms with the fear. But as Christians, we know that this kind of transformation that we're talking about isn't something we can just will for ourselves. We must have faith in our creator, the one who claims each of us even still today. Sarah is an example of how when we are pushed to our edge, even if we are a matriarch and a woman who is faithful, we can still hurt those around us. We can lash out and destroy. Hagar is an example of how even when we feel at our lowest, God is still by our side. God shows up in ways that are unexpected, that shatter status quos. For Hagar, God shows up in the form of a well and a legacy. Diana Butler Bass drives home the idea of beauty in the edges by recounting a conversation she had with an archbishop. Here's what she writes. Several years ago, Archbishop Rowan Williams and I were talking about the future of Christianity. Neither of us were feeling particularly optimistic about the institutional church. I asked him where he found hope. At the edges, he said. Look to the edges. There's always hope at the edges. As Jesus followers, we find our hope in the life and legacy of the one who was sent to earth for each of us. Abraham, Sarah, Hagar, they are all people who are blessed with a legacy and an inheritance, even if it isn't in the way they imagined, even if it's more complicated than we could ever know. We, too, are blessed by our Creator, a God who calls each of us by name, who sent love down to earth for us, and who is by our side through the Spirit. May we find hope at the edges today and every day. Amen.